Let me read from the ESV version of God's Holy Word, chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. The sermon title this morning is A Limited Time Offer. You can see that connection to the text that we've just read. But let me ask this question as we think of limited time offers. Why does a limited time offer work? Why is that an effective sales technique? Well, if we Google for our answer, the internet expert on advertising says, limited time offers work like a charm with online shoppers because they give prospects a compelling reason to make a purchase by driving urgency. An offer becomes more attractive for consumers when it's bound by time or availability because we're afraid we might miss out on a good opportunity. And who wants to miss out? Urgency, that's that importance that requires swift action, urgency. It's part of that limited time offer in advertising. And yes, I know within days or so, we'll be hearing all about Black Friday. <clears throat> in fact, we've already been hearing about it because it's not enough just to have one day where they tighten the screws and, and say, now only, only on Black Friday, only when the doors are open during these hours, only the best bargains. Black Friday has already begun in marketing terms for many stores. 
So they're really trying to spread the urgency in the limited time offered or many other Fridays. I don't know what they're up to. But just let me remind you pastorally, Christmas is not about all the material things. So don't panic. In fact, this is the year to, to reemphasize that with those you love. But a limited, limited time offer and that sense of urgency seems to be part of the flavor of what Paul's written here. He's making his appeal and, and he brings up uh, urgency himself. And he does so with the Corinthians. Why is he doing that with these Corinthians? Do you remember Paul's relationship with these Corinthians? This church, mostly Gentiles in the ancient world, in this cosmopolitan seaport, Paul brought the gospel many years before. Many believed. The Lord called many to faith in that place and a church was started and Paul moved on and since he's written back to them and there have been some troubles in Corinth. But the gospel continues to grow and as Paul looks back and as Paul now writes to them, he writes because some need to hear this urgent appeal because they've been distracted. They've been competing uh, speakers there, some false apostles have come in and shown something uh, more than Christ, something other than Christ as necessary for the Christian life. And so hearing that other offer and pitch and seeing the Apostle Paul endure such hardships, seeing the Apostle Paul have his schedule changed so frequently, they're, they're looking in the ad, spiritual advertisements, if you will, between Paul and these other teachers, and they're vacillating. And some are contemplating this other gospel. That's why in previous chapters, Paul wrote about Jesus and, and talked about the glory, one glory in Moses, but a greater glory in Jesus. He tried to work out the issues the false teachers were giving. And so now Paul just get, cuts to the quick. You've got to decide which gospel, which Jesus you're following. And this appeal comes afresh in this passage with two prongs in its argument. There's urgency and there's this concern that some may have believed in vain. Some may have bought in incorrectly. Some may not have genuinely experienced the gospel. And there is this urgency. I think we need to hear this today. I think this is still the, the need of the hour in the church of Jesus Christ as COVID has seen many people fall away from church attendance and uh, heartfelt worship of God, and perhaps they've fallen away from Jesus as Lord. It's time to hear Paul's call afresh that this is the day to be right with God and to be right with God in a real and effective and a fruitful way, not receiving the gospel in vain. Let's give our attention to this passage to make sure we hear and receive this urgent appeal for salvation. As we look at this, it is an appeal for salvation. As we look at verse 1, Paul says, Working together with the Lord, we appeal to you. He's writing to 
Christians at the church at Corinth. He's writing to the congregation there, a mixed congregation. He says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. He wants to see individuals saved. He wants to see them right with God by God's grace. Faith in the gospel, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The context here is being right with God and then also right with fellow men. Paul's whole letter, really, if you looked at the last six chapters and page through, you would see that he's constantly reminding them of the good news of the gospel and what a difference Christ has made and to be reconciled to God. For instance, in chapter 4, just a page or so behind, chapter 4, verse 6, he said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't go seeking after the face of Mosaic teachers and an Old Testament hybrid gospel. In the face of Jesus Christ, you see all that you need to see. And in chapter 5, Paul had been talking about this reconciliation and his desire to to see people persuaded chapter 5 verse 11 therefore knowing the fear of the lord we persuade others what does he mean by the fear of the lord we we preached on that previously but it sounds to paul like there's going to be a day of accounting it sounds to paul that that this is some kind of limited opportunity and there are serious consequences if you're on the wrong side of this offer And so he seeks to persuade others. And he writes that to these Corinthians. He writes it to us. Are we persuaded? And he's a co-worker with the Lord Jesus Christ. Very clearly expressed in verse 20 of chapter 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. The appeal of Paul in the gospel, the appeal of this letter, the appeal of this word of God being preached in your ears right now is God Almighty making an appeal to you. The most important thing your ears will hear today or this week is the word of God. And God himself is making this appeal in pulpits across the land where the gospel is faithfully preached. And there is an urgency to it. There are indications of urgencies here. Paul quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 8. We don't have time this morning to pursue the whole context there. Uh, Paul had just spoke, or excuse me, Isaiah had just spoken there about God's new work, how he would make the Jews a light for the nations, and his salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 49, verse 6. And 49, 8 is this quote. God is saying, I will do this, and as I do this, as I've listened to you, this will be the day of salvation. And so Paul quotes that to tell those in Corinth and to tell us that this day, this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, understanding who he is, what he did, and what we're called to do, this appeal, this is the day of salvation. This is a day of urgency. 
He's not simply referring to a 24-hour period on the calendar. I thought it was pretty profound that when the Great War ended, that they picked 11-11 at the 11th hour and the 11th minute to cease hostilities. That's pretty memorable. But by speaking of a day of salvation, he's talking about this period, this window of opportunity that has been open since the gospel of Christ was first preached 2,000 years ago, and the window is open today. So where's the urgency? The urgency is that it's open to you as you hear the gospel. It's open to you as you hear God's word and as the spirit works, as he brings understanding of what your response must be. I need to repent and believe because you may not be convinced tomorrow. You may not live to hear another sermon Call on him while he is near. I've always loved the verses from Isaiah that are at the head of our worship bulletin. You can take a peek from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. God draws near. God may be drawing near today. For you. Paul speaks with urgency to these Corinthians and to us. And his concern is also expressed not only in the repeated, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's a day of decision. And let me remind you to not yet decide for Christ is to make a decision, it's to say, Lord, this gospel offer, that's, that's really amazing. I can be forgiven. All I have to do is believe in Christ. Repent and believe in Him. And, and I don't even have to clean up my life first. I just believe in Christ. That's pretty neat. But I, I think I'm going to wait on that. What does it mean to reject the gospel? It means to reject God. It means to be ungrateful. It means to have to, to hedge your bets. Maybe tomorrow you'll feel differently or you'll understand more you want to see what other options are on the table what are you thinking when you say no to God but this additional phrase we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain is spoken to those who have made some sort of profession but don't yet possess the grace of God And churches in Western civilization are filled with people like that. There may be some here. That you've believed, you've signed on, you've got a Bible. But even as Paul looks at the church of Corinth, he may look here and say, I hope no one here is believing in vain. What what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, I, I know I clip a lot of coupons when it says, oh, I've got $5 off at this store or that store, and I stick them in my briefcase because I don't want to miss $5 off. But I often fail to look at the fine print. Oh, it's only good until a certain time. I've clipped that coupon in vain when it expired back in August. 
You profess, but don't possess. You don't exercise. You don't enjoy. You don't work with and use and walk by faith. You don't know the Lord day in and day out and serve him. If it's just head knowledge or a date on the calendar when you were a kid on the woodchip trail or in Sunday school or at a VBS and somebody wrote a date in your Bible. Today is the day of salvation. Are you walking with Christ today? Are you repenting and believing today? Is he Lord and Savior today? I think what Paul does as he goes on in this passage and gives us a long list of unusual experiences, he is showing in part that to possess the grace of God, to have gone through the new birth, to walk with Christ will resemble somewhat what Paul has done. Yes, Paul's the epitome of suffering for Christ. But does your life point to heavenly power at work? Does your life point to growth and purity and righteousness and godliness? Are there fruits of the Spirit? Let's look at what Paul goes into in this list. And I hope I don't disappoint anyone by not taking all 28 items and talking about them at length. If I spend a minute on each one, that's a half hour. (laughs) But hopefully you ask the same question that I do. Why does Paul drop this list right here? We know from previous passages that he feels he has a treasure in a clay pot, clay vessel. He knows his sense of weakness. He's mentioned previously in this same letter other afflictions he has endured, how he has been near death. This is but one of several lists. But he submits it here, I suggest, as evidence of his endurance, of his belief and service for God that is not in vain. As people are vacillating between who to believe, should we stick with Paul or not? Paul's going to say, hey, I've laid my life on the line for this message. Do not doubt my sincerity or my urgency. Paul presents himself as a commendable servant, first of all. Let's look at that in verse 3. We, and he's speaking in the plural because he had associates, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. In other words, his appeals, his reminders, his sense of urgency. He says, I'm I'm not the problem here, people. You've heard, you know what you're supposed to believe. I have not hindered that. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no... Fault may be found with our ministry, but, verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he's going to begin the list. He's commending himself. He's pointing to his life and his his resume, his uh, uh, hospital uh, chart, and all these other things as evidence of his ministry. And I think the key to understanding this, I was very much helped by the explanations of Kent Hughes, a well-known senior pastor still alive today. He, he, he really helps by pointing out that this first term, by great endurance, is the focus. Why is that the focus? Well, it's first. 
And it's in the singular, and it's followed by all sorts of plurals. And the things that follow are the occasions and instances of that great endurance. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth again, and his overall argument is, I am still believing this message. I am still urging you with this message. So endurance is the main emphasis. And under that, at least the first nine things come in three groups of three. For instance, um, his great endurance is seen first in those first, those next three things as general troubles that he faced. So when he lists great endurance, he says in, notice how the preposition there, great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities. Those are broad categories, right? Hardships, that covers a lot. Afflictions, that covers a lot. And calamities. And then the next three, seeing this pattern, they talk about troubles more directly from others, beatings, imprisonments, riots, as people have reacted to him. And then the third set of three shows that he has endured, his endurance is great, even when he has pressed himself and, uh, Kent Hughes says, afflicted himself, self-afflicted troubles. That next list uh, there, as you see uh, here. Um, Beatings, imprisonments, riots. And then he goes to labors. Well, that's not imposed on him by anyone else but himself. Paul decided to labor longer in this place or in that place. Sleepless nights. Paul pressed himself to travel. Paul pressed himself to pray. Or to preach through the night. Hunger. He was busy. He didn't eat. So that third set of threes. It seems to almost be self-afflicted trouble. And across that whole list of nine. Those are illustrations of his endurance. Instead of giving up. Or stopping. Or dodging and fleeing. He's gone through all those things. As the Lord has led him. And the the lists go on to show the qualities of his endurance. Not just the occasions through general trouble, trouble from others or troubles that as he pressed himself. But he goes on to show his endurance and its spiritual qualities. Do you see how it starts here in verse 6? By purity. Now wait, that's not a hardship. That's not a, a difficulty. But he's had to endure in maintaining his purity and his knowledge, his patience and kindness because of the Holy Spirit with genuine love. This list is talking about the qualities of his endurance. You see, there are different ways to do a task. Begrudgingly. Yeah, I'll do it. Oh, boy. And you're out there raking the leaves with an attitude, whatever the task is. And there's another way to endure with a task, with a calling, with better qualities. Paul's writing to these Corinthians and doesn't say, boy, just by the skin of my teeth I survived. No, he's writing and saying, I've done this while maintaining my integrity. I've done it with the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm doing it in love. He's describing these qualities and reminding them of what they knew. He was with them for a year and a half at least. They saw that. And he's reminding them of that, his spiritual 
qualities. And those spiritual qualities uh, include this, this great line at the end of verse 7. And it gets, it gets the preacher's attention. He says, uh, and the power of God, by truthful speech, and the power of God. So now he's reminding them that his ministry has supernatural qualities, not just spiritual qualities, supernatural qualities. The power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. That's pretty serious imagery. He's armed for the task. And his weapons, as he writes elsewhere, are not the weapons of the world, but the weapons of God, truth. Uh, One scholar thinks that Paul is referring here in the right hand would be the sword, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And typically in the left hand, you would hold on to the backside of a shield, the shield of faith. So Paul has served and endured and fought the good fight of faith, advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ with the word of God and his shield of faith, even when he has been afflicted and imprisoned and the victim of riots. He has reengaged. He has endured And what's the effect of this list as we read it? Verse 8, 9, 10. He points that there has been honor even though some see dishonor. That there's been praise even though many slander him. Even as he's been treated as an imposter, he's been true and faithful. Some people don't know who this Paul is, yet he has made himself known. Some have tried to kill him, and behold, he lives. These paradoxes, these contrary pairs at the end of this long list are saying that my endurance has continued and it stands as evidence despite contrary appearances. I'm sure someone could drive down the the street in front of the church And maybe if they had the right angle, see me in the pulpit and say, what is that guy doing up there? Talking and talking and talking. They may not see any wisdom in the preaching of God's word. But we don't judge on appearances. And when Paul presents his life with all its hardships, as well as with all its strengths, that endurance, he says, Make sure that you're not fooled by these appearances, these paradoxes. And he lines them up for us. He pairs the, the, the difficult thing that someone sees or charges with the reality. Doesn't that remind us of what Paul said earlier, that we walk by faith and not by sight? We don't sometimes pursue greater spirituality because we... We, we, we see parts of it that it might be uncomfortable to, boy, if I quote a Bible verse at work or if I tell this friend that they're living in sin or if I say something, if I, if I take the next step in faithfulness to God, it's, it doesn't look pleasant if I go there. Don't let those appearances dissuade you. Paul's endurance was like the Lord Jesus Christ who said or was described in Philippians 
but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The Christian is called to believe in Christ and to follow Christ. And that's the Via Della Rosa, that's the way of the cross. Yes, there's heaven at the end. There's great reward. There will be the Father's smile. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Unless you've believed in vain. Unless it's just been this veneer and it's going to come off at the last day. And, and God is going to look at you and say, I never knew you. Are you just trying to, to cobble together some religious solutions to, to get through the day? Or do you hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and live in the light of God's word? Paul's pressing the Corinthians and he's pressing us. He doesn't want it to be in vain. He says, my ministry is evidence that it hasn't been in vain in my life. Kent Hughes says here, Paul's suffering did not disqualify him. Rather, they proved the authenticity of his faith and commitment. I like the title of Stuart Briscoe's commentary on, on 1 Peter, I think it is. Um, uh, when the, the, the tough get going, you know, when, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Popular phrase among guys who want to bolster their confidence and their boldness, but it's a truth of Christians. How we face our afflictions, how we follow steadfastly after Christ, how we do not expect to be treated better than our master was. So that's Paul's appeal. Be right with God, believe, and stay the course. And yet, we include verses 11, 12, and 13 at the end of this passage for a reason. Because Paul is wrapping up his appeal. And he's not just pulling apostolic rank, but he's making a plea as their spiritual father. I've been pastor to many of you for a long time. Sorry if it hasn't been as good as you deserve. But there's a privilege in that. I, I know your stories. I, I, I know what you've gone through. I know the heartache your children have caused you or this has caused you. Or that brush when so-and-so had cancer. Or those angry things that happened in a divorce or hardship or unemployment. or I, I know those things. And, and, and a lot of those things are in my mind as I plead and preach to you. I care that you find the help that I found in God's word. Paul has a similar relationship with those at Corinth. He knew many of them by name. And he's already expressed the fact that he's their spiritual father. Take a quick look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Just a few lines that Paul writes there. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. It sounds like a dad. I, 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 I just want to tell you this. Not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And he continues, verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, 
you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul was their spiritual father. And he had rank in his apostle. He could stand and declare God's truth with the Holy Spirit's authority because of the office he held. He had been personally commissioned by Christ. But he comes as a father. And one thing fathers know is they know the name of their children. In our passage here in 2 Corinthians 6, notice how he pauses in verse 11 and uses their name broadly. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. He refers to them. He reminds them that by the use of that name, he knows where they are and he knows who they are. And it's interesting, in Paul's letters, you can check this for yourself, in Paul's letters, when he writes and calls them out by name, O church at Corinth, it's because he's deeply stirred in his emotions and he cannot help but be personal. In Galatians chapter 3, when he, his dander is up because of a false gospel, Paul wrote to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You remember that? So here he's calling out to these Corinthians. Or as he does in Philippians chapter 4 when he writes near the end of that letter. uh, He says this in 4.14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel when I left. He goes on to, to just connect with them personally. And he does that here in chapter 6. Our God is a personal God. He knows our name. The Lord Jesus Christ himself taught about the nature of being the good shepherd. The sheep recognize his voice. And the good shepherd knows their names. He knows you. Paul goes on to write with an open heart. Like the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ loved us to the end. He loved us to do what was required. Do you remember at the Last Supper how the Lord Jesus took off his outer robes and and stripped down for work and washed the feet of the disciples? It needed to be done and Jesus did it. But he also did it to begin to show them his love that was willing to do what needed to be done. Peter objected and the Lord says, no, Peter, let's, let's have this done. How can, I, how can I die for you if you won't even let me wash your feet? The Lord Jesus, great of heart. You know, that night the Lord Jesus gave his people the Lord's Supper, a meal of remembrance to remember what? His great love. No greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
to remember the death of Christ, that Christ laid down his life for us. We are fickle. We hear other things. We forget the great price that was paid to bring us into a right relationship with the Lord. The Lord's Supper, which we'll observe today, will remind us of the price that was paid. Paul's heart was open. The Lord Jesus came full of love. God so loved the world that he sent his son. So Paul ends our passage here by reminding them and us that the heart of the matter is this. Your heart needs to be open to the gospel. Widen your hearts also. It's not just a head knowledge, Corinthians. You can't just pick between worldviews. You need to embrace this gospel. And love this Lord and Savior and serve him faithfully, walking by faith, enduring, persevering by faith. It's a matter of the heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Paul wrote to the Romans, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not just the head, but it's also the heart, the inner man, your, your will, your affections, your commitments. He goes on, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Do not profess to know the gospel without a heart. That loves Jesus. So two closing exhortations. Number one, it should be very obvious. Answer the appeal. Respond to the gospel today. You know me, I don't twist arms. We don't play endless versions of just as I am and wait till you've had enough and then squeeze you into some kind of prayer of repentance. Human manipulation only produces human results. It's the spirit who works. But when the gospel is preached, when God's offer of salvation has been extended, it is the opportunity to believe. The prerequisite is, is that you're a sinner. And you need a savior. Will you have Christ? Will you be reconciled? Are you persuaded who Jesus is and what he has done that it can cover your sins and bring you into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Respond today. And the second exhortation is for those who have responded. Let your conduct adorn the gospel. Have that endurance. Have a possession of the gospel that bears itself out every day. Does your conduct hinder some from coming to Christ? Are you so given to worldliness and trite and passing topics that you never talk of anything as substantial? And if you tried, people would look at your life and say, boy, I don't know where that's coming from. Does your conduct put up a hindrance? Paul, that was important to Paul. He says, we're not putting any obstacles out. Well, let me ask you this. Does your conduct honor Christ and show the fruit of your belief? Does your conduct display the spiritual power of God in you? 
some of the preachers I've heard in person and esteem the most are those that I can see walk in fear of the Lord and in holiness. And I've been able to see a couple of those guys close enough to know it's not an act. It's not just their pulpit mannerisms. And it's often my prayer. God, give me a serious pursuit of holiness and a gravitas because of the fear of the Lord that's evident to others. I'm a cheerful, gregarious fellow. But I hope you know that my anchor is cast into the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no other hope and I have no greater joy than knowing him. Let our conduct adorn that gospel. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Father, may you help us bear fruit in every good work. May we indeed increase in the knowledge of God and may we be strengthened by power from on high for all endurance and patience with joy. We give you thanks, Father, for sending your Son, for working by your Spirit to join us to him and to accept us in him and to give us this hope of heaven. May we be your ambassadors. May we respond and then extend this offer of the gospel. May this be truly a season of light as we come upon the holidays on our calendar. Father, may we bring good cheer and news of great joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Father, do these things for your glory in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.